You are listening to a sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee, the historic church of Robert Murray McShane. For more sermon content, please visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk. In our Bibles to Paul's letter to the Philippians, chapter 4, where we are swiftly drawing our series of studies in this marvelous letter to a conclusion as Paul writes, as we uh, have seen to the church that was his joy and crown. If you're using the church Bible, the passage is on page 1180, 1180. And Paul now, uh, Philippians chapter 4, verses 2 through 9 is bringing to a conclusion, really, his teaching on the Christian life. Uh, He, as he does with all his letters, begins with an introduction. He ends with a conclusion, often including particular greetings. And then, as usual, in the middle of the letter, uh, he gives teaching that he thinks is especially appropriate to the particular congregation to which he's writing, Uh, usually because he has heard something from somebody. That's always the way, isn't it? Uh, And if you're a member of a congregation, uh, you do need to know that your ministers know much more about you than you imagine. Uh, They pick up all kinds of interesting bits of information about members of the congregation that either the members themselves don't mean to disclose, or the people who are speaking to their minister don't really mean to tell the minister anything about anybody else. And so, usually ministers slowly build up the little jigsaw puzzle pieces of who you actually are. So, it's just as well our minister loves us, and just as well we love him. Well, let's read this concluding section of exhortation. And if you're using the New International Version, you'll notice it actually has the title, Exhortations. I plead with Euodia, and I plead with Suntiki to agree with each other in the Lord. Yes, and I ask you, loyal yoke fellow, help these women who have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel, along with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers, whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God, and the God of peace, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. 
and whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice, and the God of peace will be with you. I wonder when you last received a personal letter, not a demand for payment or a forum letter or an invitation to get yet another credit card or a notice about something that was going to happen, but an actual, real, tangible, preferably fountain pen written personal letter. Actually, uh, looking at the congregation this evening, I'm almost uh, enticed to ask if there are some of you who have actually never received such a letter. Uh, my guess is the older you are, the more likely you are to have received such a letter recently. But for most of us, it's probably quite a long time. And so, because we use quite different means of communication, we've forgotten how letters work. Letters work the way Paul's letters worked. In most instances, when you're writing them, you begin with longer paragraphs, and the connection between one paragraph and what follows is fairly obvious. Remember how, for example, what Paul says in Philippians chapter 2 about Christ flows into what he says about the Christian life. And then in these personal letters, for a wide variety of reasons, either because the post is in 10 minutes or because you've run out of Basildon Bond, or in Paul's instances, perhaps even because the writing materials were running out, the, the, letters, uh, the letters become, in a sense, somewhat more disjointed. Uh, and so, there are shorter sentences or shorter paragraphs. And it's not always so easy to tell what's the connection between what he's just been writing and, and what he's writing now. And Paul's letters follow that style. Uh, yes, they are breathed out by God, as Paul writes to Timothy, but they're breathed out through the Apostle Paul and all of his humanity, all of his personal characteristics, and, and all of the, the kind of things that happen when you're writing a personal letter happen in Paul's letters. And I think that's pretty obvious in this section. This section, at least at first sight, seems so disjointed. Uh, there doesn't seem to be an obvious connection between verses 2 and 3 and verses 4 through 7 and verses 8 through 9. And so, even the learned people who wrote the headings in the New International Version came up with this brilliant title for the paragraph exhortations. But there is, I think, a real connection in what Paul is saying here, not only to what he's already said uh, up to Philippians chapter 4, but there is a kind of spiritual flow goes through the themes of these three paragraphs. The first paragraph, verses 2 and 3, is about unity in the fellowship. The second paragraph in verses 4 through 7 is about joy in Christ. And the third paragraph, 
towards the end, verses 8 and 9, is about dignity in our lifestyle. And we'll see, I think, that there is a, there is a real connection among these three themes. They are not just isolated uh, exhortations, but they are exhortations that belong together, and one flows from another. Each of them is necessary to a full-orbed and mature and fruitful Christian church life. And he begins, of course, with the theme of unity in the fellowship. Those of us who have been tracking through Philippians, we've seen him come to this right from the very beginning, how he uses language and, and sometimes says quite specifically that he is concerned about their unity. He understands they need unity if they're going to stand firm in the face of the world's opposition, and he understands that there needs to be real unity in the fellowship if the fellowship is to give expression to the gospel. Christ's gospel is the word of reconciliation. And if members of the fellowship are not living in reconciliation, then we are living in denial of the gospel. And so, this letter has been punctuated by appeals for unity, by counsel about how unity is brought about in the fellowship by the humility of the members as they have what he calls the mind of Jesus Christ. And certainly, if you're an elder in a congregation or a pastor of a congregation, as Epaphroditus probably was, or the apostle who had planted the congregation, the unity of the fellowship is priceless. Uh, you can so easily take it for granted until it begins to fall apart, but when it falls apart, it causes agonies, agonies in the fellowship and impoverishment in the witness the fellowship has to those who are outsiders. So, the unity of the fellowship and the genuine peace of the church is something that is of tremendous importance to those who are our ministers and our elders. And for that reason, sometimes it is necessary, surgeon-like, to lance a boil if there is poison below the surface, and if there are evidences in the boil of that poison and this seems to have been the situation here in the church at Philippi. In this case, in the instance of these two women to whom we've referred maybe as many as half a dozen times already, Euodia and Syntyche. There are several very striking things about Paul's whole approach to this question of the disagreement, whatever it was, he doesn't mention whatever it was, this disagreement that there was between these two women. And some striking things. One thing is he, he, he calls them out, doesn't he? He refers to them individually by name. Usually when Paul does that, he's praising people. I think there are less than a handful of names referred to in Paul's letters where he is speaking negatively and four of them are in Second Timothy. 
So, it's very rare for Paul to mention people by name if he wants to say something negative. Not only so, uh, but if you, if you were a brother or if you had a sister and you, you began uh, fighting with one another, uh, he does what your mother did or your father did. You notice this? He addresses each of them by name. This will remind some of you of your mother. Now Jane, now Susan. Not now Jane and Susan, but it's now Jane, now Susan, and here. Notice the language. I plead with Euodia, and I plead with Syntyche. I mean, it's not even as though they could, like, huddle together for security in the congregation as the letter was read out. He's singling them out because they've singled themselves out with respect to one another, and he's appealing to them to agree together. But the reason he takes this very bold step, you think this is casual, then wait till next Sunday morning when David Robertson mentions your name from the pulpit and someone else's name with whom you fall out during the course of this week and appeals to you both by name to agree together. This is serious. And this is why Paul does this. But it's not only serious, it's an expression of how much he cares. This is not a risk-free strategy. For all we know, the day this letter was read out in the church at Philippi was the last day Euodia and Syntyche turned up. We don't know. This was not a risk-free strategy. And that's a real word to us, isn't it? You know, it's, it's almost a characteristic of evangelical churches that have life and growth that they kind of assume that nothing ever rocks the boat that nothing difficult ever takes place. But where God is working, where God is working, almost always messy situations arise. For where God works, sin comes to the surface. And the fact that Paul refers to these two women by name is, is a real expression of his care for their spiritual well-being and the spiritual well-being of the whole congregation. And perhaps it also implies how much he realizes these two women could be influencing the whole church. Try and think about it this way. This is one of the churches where we know the story of its origins. Who are these women, Euodia and uh, Syntyche? You know, there was a great classical scholar taught in the University of Aberdeen, Sir William Ramsey. He was professor of humanity, I think, uh, in the top university in Britain. And uh, he was a classical scholar, not a New Testament scholar. But he surmised the possibility, this would be oh, 100 years ago, he surmised the possibility that Lydia in Acts chapter 16, was simply a way of describing a woman who came from Lydia. In other words, it wasn't actually a personal name. 
It was uh, the, the kind of name you, you might call somebody Jock or Hamish or, you know, something, just a Jimmy. That's what they do in Glasgow. Hey, Jimmy! And uh, he surmised that perhaps she actually was Suntiki. That's just all imagination. But imagine this is a real-life situation, and Lydia is one of these women. Now, just take one step further and imagine for a moment, isn't this within the bounds of possibility? Imagine for a moment that the other woman, Euodia, which means something like good travels, taking the good road, Imagine she is that poor slave girl whose name we don't know from Acts chapter 16, whose demons Paul exercised was brought into the church and became one of its two founder members. I mean, if it's this serious to call out these names, these women surely must have been women who had places of great affection and significance in the church. You think that's beyond imagination. You've not been around many churches. You don't think founder members of churches could ever fall out. You need to do some traveling, alas. I see this is this all pure speculation, but, but what I'm trying to say is, can you imagine yourself into the situation where two women in our congregation who are both esteemed, who have had tremendous influence in the fellowship, are no longer agreeing with one another. And then you have the atmosphere that Paul is writing into where he's urging them to agree together for the sake of the unity of the church because he does this because their disagreement is not a private matter. There are private matters of disagreement that we may have. We're not clones of one another. But you see, if this were not serious, I think, well, if I were Paul, not that he would do what I do, I'd be inclined to just have a quiet word with Epaphroditus and say, you know, when you get there with my letter, Epaphroditus, I've been, I've been hearing one or two things about you, audience, and he, we just have a quiet word with them. No, it's this is like a spiritual exocet missile into this fellowship because Paul is profoundly concerned that where there is disagreement and where these two women are, are torn apart from one another, what does that space leave room for? Satan. That's his concern, that Satan will come in and take advantage over them. Well, imagine that uh, the deacons had quietly a subcommittee of the deacons, indeed a subcommittee of a subcommittee of the deacons without telling anybody, had, a, had a, a camera installed in the congregation, like, like the ones they have on some of the motorways, you know, you're going at 90 miles an hour down the M, whatever, and, and it flashes up, you know, ST. 69 YBX. It's Mr. So and so, and the name's up there. You're going at 90 miles an hour. Imagine there were a 
camera in the church that, uh, you know, when we're, when we're singing a hymn, suddenly in the screen here we've all the facilities. I can see Duncan's brain going round here. We've all the facilities, flashes up two names and says, imagine God had a camera like that. Says, well, He doesn't, except He does. What's as well as He doesn't flash up on the screen, He flashes it out through the Word, doesn't He? And it is a mercy to me that it could be that two of us are sitting in the congregation in fairly bitter disagreement with one another. And instead of our names coming up here, they are coming out here into our consciences. So, the Lord is saying to us through this Word, and my dear brother or my dear sister, uh, the first thing you need to do is to be reconciled. Remember how Jesus put it. This isn't Paul's novel teaching. If you're coming to the altar with your gift of worship and praise for the Lord, and you're alienated from your brother, then leave your gift. The treasurer won't care, and be reconciled to your brother. And see how he, he calls people in to assist, because it's not a private matter. I ask you, loyal yoke fellow, Susie Goss, maybe that could be somebody's name, Mr. Mr. Put Them Back Together Again, because uh, sometimes we're not able, you know. Uh, and and this, is so, this, is so, this is so counter-natural to us, isn't it? It's, it's none of my business. And Paul's saying, beloved, it's all of our business, because what's happening here has all the potential to destroy the unity of the fellowship of the church. And so, he's calling them to agreement together. And, and that's costly. I remember on occasion asking someone who had an influential role in a church for cooperation and uh, trying to spell out what cooperation would lead to and being told in the presence of others, you're not asking for cooperation, you're asking for crucifixion and having the presence of mind to say nothing but in my mind were the words. But that's exactly right. Cooperation, unity of fellowship required His crucifixion, and it also calls for ours, that we will say, I will not put myself first, but the fellowship first. So, first of all, he's calling for unity in the fellowship. And it may seem that suddenly he, he goes off at a tangent. You know, he's calling out Yodi and Suntiki one minute, and then the next minute, rejoice in the Lord always. Yes, I said it again, I say, rejoice. It was the connection. Well, the connection's actually fairly obvious, isn't it? 
that where there is disunity in the fellowship, where there is this kind of, of significant disagreement between you and someone else, then joy begins to evaporate. But where there is unity and harmony, then joy becomes a possibility. The church that is divided can never be the church that experiences joy, either in fellowship or in worship. And of course, joy in worship is one of the great keynotes of the presence of God among His people. And so, having, as it were, cleared the decks of the poison, He now goes on to speak to them not just about their unity and fellowship, but their joy in the Lord Jesus Christ. And something should strike you here as well. What is it? Um, well, it, it might be that He tells you twice to do the same thing. It might be that He says to you that you've to do this always. What strikes me as probably for us the most striking thing is that He commands us to do it. He commands us to rejoice. Now, um, everything in the world tells us that's a counsel of perfection. You say to your grumpy child, rejoice! So, how, how does he not understand the gospel better? Doesn't he understand that, that, that commandments can never produce life? Well, he understands the gospel perfectly. And what he understands in giving them this command is that they've already received instruction about how they may experience the fulfillment of this command. Indeed, in many ways, the, the rest of the letter has been building up that foundation. And it's a perfect illustration of, of what Jesus said. You remember, he says it in in the upper room in John 15, 11. He says it again in John chapter 17. He says, now, disciples, I have, I've said these things to you. I've given you my word in order that my joy might be in you and that your joy might be full. And he's giving them the, the clue, as Paul has given them the clue. And that is, as the as the truth and power of the gospel sinks into my soul, the fruit of it is bound to be joy. And that's why he says not just rejoice, but rejoice in the Lord. Uh, I think we can think about it this way. Um, sometimes these words are, are, are misunderstood as though to say, uh, just rejoice. There's no reason for you not to rejoice. Uh, that's not Paul's teaching. Paul realizes there may be many, many reasons why you should not rejoice. There are many discouraging things in your life. Uh, you, you face severe trials. You are physically unwell. You are in pain. How can he say rejoice? Because he's not saying 
rejoice in pain for its own sake. He's not saying uh, stick your head in the sand and forget that you've got trials and, and just rejoice. Uh, may God have mercy on us that, that some of that nonsense is actually taught as though it were Christianity today, and sadly taught to some of the neediest people. Now, what Paul is really teaching us and what he actually experienced himself was this, that in the midst of all the things that cause us sorrow, Jesus Christ brings us joy, and the joy that Jesus Christ brings sheds its light on the sorrows and pains we experience. It doesn't take them away, but like a, a painting that is that is taken out of one frame and put into a frame that really matches it. It changes the way we look at our struggles and our sorrows so that in the midst of them we have this anchor of joy in the Lord. And you see, it's that that leads him on to say, let your gentleness be evident to all. At first sight, this seems to be like, you know, this is the next thing that comes into his mind. But you understand this, that it's only when there is a measure of joy in Christ that there will be gentleness in our dealings with other people. Have you, have you never noticed this, that the joyless person is more likely to be the harsh person? The joyful person, the, the person who joys in the Lord is the person who has been sufficiently freed from uh, his own interests and his own dispositions or her, her, her own uh, idiosyncrasies to be able to think graciously about another, to be, to be gentle with another. When, when I am consumed with my own pains, my own challenges, when there is no lightening of my life through the joy of the Lord, then of course my, my responses, my reactions to people tend to be bitter. Uh, my spirit becomes metallic. And so even in the midst of my struggles, there needs to be this fountain flowing of the joy of our Lord Jesus Christ. And as that joy it bubbles up in my life, then this joy that He commands begins to, begins to drown my natural harshness, my metallic spirit, become gentle. Remember how we're told in the Gospels that Jesus rejoiced in spirit. And remember how that same Jesus appeals to us to come to Him, come to me, you who are burdened and heavy laden. Why should I come to you, Jesus? Because I am gentle in spirit, gentle in spirit. Now, sometimes I've heard people despise the words of the hymn, gentle Jesus, meek and mild. But he was gentle, wasn't he? None more gentle. Didn't break the bruised reed. Didn't snuff out the dimly burning wick. 
as Isaiah tells us and as the, the gospel of Matthew says is fulfilled in Jesus. And, and the same with us. As the, as the joy of the Lord fills our hearts, then we're, we're enabled to be gentle with others. And, and that's what so many people need. They need gentleness, not harshness. I always found it interesting that uh, one of the hymns that has most often been attributed to John Calvin, the, the Genevan reformer, is the hymn, I greet thee whom I sure redeemer art. And if it wasn't written by him, it was written by somebody who'd read his institutes very carefully. And as these beautiful lines, I think probably because he saw in Christ the opposite of what he was by nature and saw in the Lord Jesus what he most needed to receive by grace. No harshness hast thou, and no bitterness. And so, there's a connectedness here uh, between the joy of the Lord and the gentleness of the believer that drives away that harshness, and at the same time, you'll notice, drives away the anxiety. I mean, it's the same thing, isn't it? What's the, the worst thing you can say to… well, maybe not the worst thing, but it's certainly not going to help very much to somebody who is anxious. You say, don't be anxious. Don't be anxious. I mean, it's like saying to somebody who's got a broken leg, don't have a broken leg. And, and if you're anxious and somebody says that, you want to lift them up by the lapels and say, that's my problem, I am anxious, and I can't stop being anxious. And the more I think about being anxious, the more anxious I become. But you see the connection, the joy of the Lord begins to lift me out of myself to Him. It's joy in the Lord, in the kurios, in the Creator of the heavens and the earth, and the Redeemer who has died for my sins, in the One who's going to bring me to glory. And you'll notice that He gives just a little hint about that. He says, rejoice, let your gentleness be evident to all, because the Lord is near. There's a way saying, just, just look what's coming. Just look what's coming. And when you sense that your joy is resourced in Christ and that Christ is coming and that He's going to make everything new, going to transform you, going to make your fellowship with others perfect, you're going to be able to live in His presence without sin. It's going to be easy to love Him. It's going to be easy to please Him. It's going to be natural to do that. Then, says the Apostle Paul, instead of being overwhelmed by your anxieties, what do you do? You, you see your head is lifted up now, and you begin to take them to Him. Cast your anxieties upon Him, because He cares for you. We're not delivered from our anxieties by telling ourselves that we need to be delivered from our anxieties, but by experiencing a reality that is more powerful than our anxieties. It's uh, old Thomas Chalmers' principle again, isn't it? The expulsive power of a new affection. But the new affection is not something that I work up. It's something that Christ gives. 
And yes, if by nature I am an anxious person, I may struggle with that for the rest of my life. I may need the encouragement of people who know my struggles for the rest of my life. Others may need to help me to cope with what sometimes overwhelms me, the sheer burden of the realities of my past or my present or perhaps my future. But you see, with the joy of the Lord, there's there's a fresh empowerment, enough strength to lift up my anxieties looking to the fact that He is coming again in majesty and power, and say, Lord Jesus, these are, these are my anxieties. I'm, I'm weary being anxious about them. Would you be anxious about them for me, please? And hasn't He said, come to me, you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. I came to Jesus as I was, weary and worn and sad, and found in Him a resting place, and He has made me glad. It's something, isn't it, to think that Horatius Bonner once preached in this building, more than once. Wonderfully ever sang his hymn, I heard the voice of Jesus say, so you see it's beginning to fit together and to flow together, and the result is this. There is unity in the fellowship. There is joy in the Lord, and that produces dignity in their lifestyle. Finally, he says, and he means it this time, finally, brothers. And if you're using the ESV, there's probably a little footnote that tells you that's brothers and sisters, and of course, we knew that anyway. Whatever is true, Whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything excellent, praiseworthy, think about such things. Now, let me be absolutely honest. For some people, this is one of the great verses in the Bible. Oh, I love this verse. I just absolutely love this verse. And secretly, I think to myself, you love that verse, and you love Jesus saying, do unto others as you would have them do unto yourself. You don't understand this verse at all. Maybe that's unfair. Me? For years I thought, why are you saying this? Why are you saying something with which the world absolutely agrees? That's why worldly people, non-Christians, people who actually hate the authority of Scripture will tell you that they love this verse. So I want to know, Paul, you know, when the introduction takes place and Paul gives his Q&A heavenly session. Your turn, the Mike Ferguson. For years I wanted to say, what on earth were you doing telling these Christians in Philippi, despised and persecuted by the world, to think about things that even the world can admire? And then the penny dropped. That's exactly why he's saying to us, think about these things, because even the world can admire them, but it can't produce them. Any of you ever have to plow your way through the horrible poetry of Ovid and remember that kind of stunning confession he makes? I see the better 
and I approve it. But it is the worst that I pursue. And that's where the world is. Men and women are still made as the image of God. They still understand the things of which they should approve. This is why Paul says at the end of Romans 1, when people flaunt the Word of God, the law of God, the grace of God, and the gospel of God, they have got to drag as many people as possible into what they're doing, because that's going to be their defense. Everybody's doing it, and it's happening all around, isn't it? But ungodly people know that this is how, is meant to, how life is meant to be lived. And what Paul is saying is, go and live life the way it's meant to be lived, because you'll be the only people doing it. And all of this, what, what is all of this? this? What do all these words mean? Whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything's excellent or praiseworthy. Think about such things. Well, it's Philippians' version of 1 Corinthians 13, isn't it? And 1 Corinthians 13 is, in its essence, just the description of the Lord Jesus, isn't it? It's kind of a negative image of the beauty of the love of the Lord Jesus. And this is a portrayal in language that doesn't actually mention Jesus, this is a portrayal of the nobility and dignity of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he's saying these things will be reproduced in your life only when your mind is set on them. These are not emotions that will strike you in your guts and give you a fuzzy feeling. These are characteristics that the gospel produces, and as you, as you think about them, as you set your mind on them, as you think on these things, then your mind rests on them, your affections are drawn out to them, your will is melted by them, and you begin to say to the Lord, Lord, work these things into my life. And this is why he adds in verse 9, whatever you've learned or received or heard from me or seen in me. I mean, imagine being able to say to the Philippians, you saw elements of this in me. Put it into practice. And then you need to go and listen again to John Ferguson's sermon from this morning. And the God of shalom, wholeness, peace dignity, life as it ought to be, the God who is Himself peace, the God who effects peace, will be with you. Paul was a Jew. That's kind of obvious, isn't it? You know, he was a convert from Judaism. And as a Jew, yeah, he thought the whole Old Testament was God's Word, but there were, there were parts of the Old Testament that, that kind of in a way were, were absolutely central. And one part of the Old Testament that was really absolutely central was the Aaronic benediction in Numbers chapter 6, verses 4 to 6, wasn't it? 
The, the, these sacrifices that Will was reading to us about, all that blood, that ghastly blood. Uh, Jerusalem must have been stinking of blood at times. Um, and what it must have meant for the, for the priest to come out and to raise his hands and to pronounce that ironic benediction, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord lift up His countenance upon you and give you shalom. And now you don't need to go to Jerusalem again. How many of these Philippians would ever see Jerusalem? You don't need the blood of bulls and goats on Jewish altars slain because Christ, the heavenly Lamb, has given Himself to bring us peace with God and peace with one another. Now, that's just the introduction. The conclusion is this. Don't fail to notice in this passage what I've scarcely mentioned. Don't fail to notice how much of the Lord Jesus is here. I plead with the Odia, I plead with Suntike to agree with each other in the Lord. Verse 4, rejoice in the Lord. Verse 7, the peace of God which transcends all understanding will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. And even if you go back through the passage again, this book of life in verse 3, who owns this book of life? Well, it's the Lamb's book of life. This joy, who is the source of this joy? It's the Lord Jesus Christ. This dignity, where do we see it and how can we get it? It's in and from and through the Lord Jesus Christ. And who is the God of peace? Emmanuel the God of peace who will be with you. It's Christ. And this is it. This letter is about unity, yes. This letter is about joy, yes. But chiefly, it's about Jesus. At the end of the day, in a sense, everything is about Jesus, isn't it? And He created everything. He'll recreate everything. Anything that is redeemed, has been redeemed by His precious blood. He's the one who has brought us at this various strange group of people that we are. He's the one who's brought us together. He's the one who is with us. He's the one who brings us to the Father and gives us peace. That's a message, isn't it? <laughs> Jesus. My Jesus, I love you. I know you are mine. For you all the follies of sin I resign. If ever I loved you, my Jesus, tis now. We ought to be able to say that at the end of every Sunday, shouldn't we? In the heightened blessing of being together. Be able to say it tonight.
If ever I loved you, my Jesus, tis now. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the marvels of the gospel of our Savior Jesus Christ and for this word that you have given to us that seems to be so endlessly full of fresh glimpses of who He is and who we are and what He has done for us and what He wants to give us and how much He loves us. Lord, we can scarcely take it in. From morning till evening today, You've spoken to us as the God of peace who gives us peace through the blood of the eternal covenant in the sacrifice of our Lord Jesus Christ. And as we come to the end of this day and are in the beginning of this new week, we pray that Jesus Christ, who is the God of peace, will truly be with us. We ask it in His name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee. If you found this sermon has been helpful to you, please help us to continue building up and assisting the people of God. Visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk For information and training on persuasive evangelism and how to share your faith biblically, please visit the website of SOLAS, the Centre for Public Christianity, at solas-cpc.org. Once again, that website address is solas-cpc.org. Thanks for listening.